0: Thanks for joining us today. We believe God is going to do great things in your life and we want to hear about it. Send us your story at at mystoryatsummitsa.com and let us know what he's done for you through this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us or bless us with a financial gift, go to summitsa.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. We're closing out our series called Life Together this weekend. And we've been talking about the power of divine connections. And we've been talking about connecting and disconnecting, and how disconnecting from the right place, a divine place, in relationships, in a church, can cost you part of your future and destiny. Or hooking up and connecting to the wrong source will always be devastating and result in loss of future and destiny. So I'm going to talk this morning from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, and I'm going to talk to you how the enemy will use people to attack your dream, your future, your destiny, and try to discourage you to give up and abandon God's divine purpose. And the enemy always works through people. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 9, Sanballat was very angry when he learned we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, Why, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something out of the stones from a rubbish heap and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, That stone wall will collapse if even a fox walks on it. Then I prayed, this is Nehemiah, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sin, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders." At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city of Jerusalem. For the people have a mind, King James said, or the people worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and Ammonites and Ashtonites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they became furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Nehemiah was a Hebrew living in exile as a captive, but he was serving as cupbearer to the king of Persia. Today, he would be chief of security for the president. The king had to trust his life to this man. A cupbearer was the guy whose wife never had to ask him when he came home at night, did you have a good day? Because he had to drink the wine and eat the food before the king got it, in case it was poisoned by so many people who wanted to kill and assassinate the king. So if he got home at night, he had a good day. So the king had to trust everything to this guy, and uh, he would have been a very successful and influential man. You had to get through him to get to the king. That also brings up another point. If you're excellent, if you're loyal, if you're faithful, even in a pagan culture with a pagan employer, you can be promoted and have great influence because of your character, your faithfulness, and loyalty, not because you wear a 14-carat necklace with a cross on it. You've got to show up, outperform, and even in a pagan culture, you can find influence. Now, I get so tired of hearing Christians and say, we need a Christian America. We've got to elect this Supreme Court. We've got to have a Christian. That means you suck. You don't have any influence at all. You're not a good employee. You're not extra effort. You don't make a difference. You're not loyal. You're not faithful. You just payday, sundown, and hope somebody else will get it done. But in every culture throughout that Bible, people rose to prominence, that had skill, ability, faithfulness, and loyalty even among pagan kings and in pagan culture and brought an awareness of God right there and got what they wanted. I'm sorry for being a little ticked off, but it's like we always want some escape from our problem. Well, I wish I had a Christian boss. He probably wishes he had a good employee. You get all the influence you want just to show up and do a great job for somebody and give them a second mile. So God stirred Nehemiah's heart to return to Jerusalem and champion the rebuilding of the wall. Now, in that day and in that culture, the wall of a city represented the strength, prestige, and glory of the city. No one respected a city that had no walls. It was insignificant, and it was indefensible against attack. In fact, Proverbs says, a man that has no rule over his spirit is like a city that has no walls, broken down, defenseless, pitiful. So Nehemiah's efforts in rebuilding this wall represented the restoration of the glory of the city of Jerusalem. Now, may I say that God wants to build your life? He's a master builder. He has a plan for you. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 God says, I know the plans I have for you. God didn't say, I'm thinking about it. He didn't say, I'm trying to work it out. He didn't say, I'm trying to figure it out. No, he said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans of good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope, and to give you an expected outcome. So God has a plan for every life in this room. You're not a question mark in the mind of God. When you woke up this morning, God didn't say, what am I going to do with you today? You are a conclusion. God is a God who declares the end from the beginning. Before you were born, God ordained a purpose for your life. God said to a young man named Jeremiah, before you were conceived in the womb, I knew you, called you by name, and ordained you to become. So God has a plan for it. Now, everybody doesn't submit to it. I'm aware of that. But God has a structured plan for you. You don't script it. You discover it. And there's a lot of ways to do that as well. So you were born to do something, to be something, to help someone do something great. But you have to cooperate with God. He won't do it for you. He fulfills your purpose with Him. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, it says, we are God's building and co-laborers together with God. So if you're sitting around waiting for pixie dust to fall on your head, it isn't going to work. But if you decide to ask God to cooperate with you in saving a marriage, building a business, building a ministry, uh, working through an economic problem, and God says, I'll go with you, I'll help you, I won't do it for you, I'll do it with you. God saves you all by himself, but everything else, you co-labor with him to get it done. God isn't going to solve your financial problem. If you're spending more than you make, you are not generous, you don't give, you don't honor God, you're not, He's not going to solve your problem by coming to church. You're going to have to change the way you do business and handle your finances. Now when you do what He said and you learn how to give and honor the Lord and not spend more than you make, He'll come alongside and supernaturally work with you and get you out of that ditch. I've seen it thousands of times but He won't do it for you, okay? So while God is building something in your life, He invites you and I to join Him in that building project. Now here's a warning. The moment you start building your life, your future, your business, your marriage, whatever, the moment you do it, you're going to upset somebody. If you're in a building project, there's always an adversary that's not happy. It's you who's building. Whether you're building a new facility for a church, building your family, building your career in business, or building your ministry, the moment you start, you're going to upset the enemy, and he, through people, is going to try to stop you. It's inevitable. If he can't stop you outright, he'll try to slow you down, discourage you, distract you, waste your time, negotiate with you, offer you some cheaper, easier alternative to your vision. So if you're building simply because you think it's a cute idea, it won't be long before the enemy succeeds in negotiating you out of your vision. You'll quit. In Nehemiah's commitment to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we're introduced to several people who came against him to try to stop his vision. And their tactics give you and I insight as to how the enemy operates in trying to stop us from building God's assignment into our lives. Now notice in chapter 4 verse 2, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones out of this rubbish heap and burned ones at that? So the first thing that happens is they start to question you. Ask questions. When the devil hates something in your life, he asks questions. And whatever the devil questions in your life is a key to what he hates in you. When the devil knows you're going to be a threat to him in some particular area of your life, he raises a question mark in that area. I think it's interesting that, in fact, the area of your life the enemy focuses on to attack is a clue to what he's afraid of in your future. There are some of you in this room, and you're under Attack in some area of your life everywhere else in your life It seems like things are fine stable, but in that particular area you're struggling and no matter what you do It seems like you're not getting ahead and you wonder What have I done? Listen, it's not what you've done It's what you are about to do what you are destined to do that terrifies the enemy Moses was a little baby, nursing his mama's breast and messing his diapers. And Pharaoh is afraid of a baby. No, not because of what Moses had done, because of what Moses would do in the future. Pharaoh didn't know, Satan knew, but he used people. He used a person to thwart this coming deliverer. And that's what he'll do with you, see? He wanted to kill Moses because of the future that he had. So the enemy knows that you'll be a terror to him in the area he's attacking in your life. If you're not under attack, you are no threat. That's not a good thing. I mean, if you're not a target, I don't want to be caught in Acts 19 where the demons say, Jesus we know, Paul we know. Sorry, who are you? Yeah, be a member of a church doesn't make you a target. It's when you start building something called a future in your life and vision for your marriage or your, your finance, your business, your career, your ministry. You want to make something out of your life. All hell goes online to come against you at that point. That's a good sign. You say, I've been praying for my unsaved husband. He's getting worse. Good. Keep praying. The enemy's hating it. He's wanting to discourage you, to cause you to stop. And so the enemy knows you're going to be a terror to him in some area that he attacks. In Genesis 3, verse 1, he says to Eve, Hath God said? The devil questioned the Word of God because he hates the Word of God. So be very careful. Watch what the devil questions in your life. Now let me show you quickly five things that the enemy hates in your life by the five questions he asks. Number one, the enemy hates it when you take action. Nehemiah verse 2, what are these feeble Jews doing? The devil hates proactive, self-starting believers. He hates people who are self-motivated. The enemy loves lazy, passive, complacent Christians. He loves those people who twiddle their thumbs, tap their feet, waiting on the Lord. And they'll be waiting till Jesus comes back. Nothing's going to happen. So take action. He hates it when you get off your backside, stop sucking your thumb, and finally decide to do something with your life. He hates that because when you take action, you take the enemy by surprise because the enemy will always underestimate you. He thinks you're feeble. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? And the devil can't match up your ability with your achievement because he doesn't recognize greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So, some of the attacks of the enemy are an assault on your identity. He wants to make you feel small, look small, think small, speak small, so you can achieve little, very little. So, you might be small, you might be feeble on the outside physically, but boy, you are strong and bad on the inside. You tell somebody that's a friend of yours near you, don't mess with me. There's more to me than meets the eye. So the enemy will try to make you feel small, despise your dream because he's afraid of your dream. You can get around some people, share your vision, and immediately they belittle you. The reason is they're small people, and they're intimidated by your goals and aspirations. So key number one, take action. Number two, the enemy hates it when you fortify yourself. The second question they ask is, will they fortify themselves? Now, what does it mean to fortify yourself? It means to build strength for the future, to make yourself strong on the inside. That's where we get the word fortress from. You don't fortify yourself for what's happening right now. You fortify yourself in preparation for future attack. When you fast, when you pray, when you study God's Word, when you tithe, It's not for immediate results you're going to get today. It's for the future. And the enemy hates it when you rebuild the broken down breaches of your life, when you mend relationships, when you settle issues with God, when you pick up your prayer life. He hates it because he knows you're no longer vulnerable to his attack. When you pay your bills, settle your quarrels, pay your taxes, answer your mail, the enemy hates it because it's a sign you are getting your life back together you're fortifying yourself you know every day i go to the gym some of you as well every day we choose a good choice for a meal and do our exercises do something po- every day i'm fortifying myself for old age i'm serious now some of you there's no condemnation but some of you did not fortify yourself and some of you look twice as old as you should Not because God doesn't love you or you don't love God, come on, but you didn't fortify yourself. When I looked at my dad when he was 58, I said, buddy, that's your future if you don't fortify yourself. Now, I'm telling you, he's 98 and won't die, but he's he's in terrible health. He's got every disease of Egypt, but he won't die. So I kind of figured I'd fortify myself. So, you're not gonna see me at the hospital, and I'm not, not gonna be on a bedpan in a nursing home, man. I, I'm fine. I'm in my mid 70s rocking, and, I'm not, and I've got everything works, and I feel great, and I love life, and I'm not medicated. Now, I'm telling you that, and the natural to understand spiritually something. I'm fortifying myself. I'm not doing it because I like it, I hate it. My grandchildren had chocolate cake and icing on it and everything. It was a big piece, and I could have eaten the whole thing, the whole thing, gorged it down. You say, oh, well, you're not so holy. I told you. I'm fortifying myself. It's got nothing to do with holy. It's got to do with I want to live a long, strong life and enjoy my children, my grandchildren, and their children. And I can't do it if I'm waddling all over the place with high blood pressure, hypoglycemia, uh, diabetes, and every plague in Egypt. Fortify yourself. Some of you right now, you're not, but you're going to pay the price when you get midlife, big time. And spiritually fortify yourself. So I'm ready financially. I'm ready. The enemy is going to attack. It's not if, it's just when. But by being in church, getting God's Word in you, by prayer, by learning to give, you're, you're fortifying yourself So you're going to be strong and resilient against his attack. Fortify yourself. Third, the devil hates it when you sacrifice. So take action, fortify yourself, pay the price. The next question asked is, will they offer sacrifices? The enemy hates it when you're determined to do whatever it takes to succeed in life. When you're determined to pay the price necessary to go where you want to go. And mark it down, you'll never get a miracle in your comfort zone. You'll never get a Kmart blue light markdown on a great life. It's expensive. Having a good marriage to go the distance is expensive. It's called, you know how you spell love? Sacrifice. Oh, Jesus, yes. When you have women and daughters and grandchildren and you're married, sacrifice. Because when you love, it never stops, right? Some of you are not real sure. I don't know. We got much sacrificing going on here, Bobby. Yeah, if you're going to stay married, it is, or then you'll be sacrificing to an attorney. Yeah, and pay an alimony. So he hates it when you burn midnight oil to get a college degree, when you deny yourself the pleasure or luxury of today so you can have a better tomorrow. He hates it when you sacrifice your ego to make your marriage work. (laughs) That happens a lot, too. Yeah. He hates it when you deny yourself to make life better for other people. The enemy hates it when you give sacrificially to a building project, when you tithe and give, because you dethrone him from being God in your life. He hates it when you give the sacrifice of praise, when you pour out your life in worship to the Lord. Hey, it's easy to praise God when everything's okay, But when you've had a rotten week and everything's gone wrong and you come to church on a rainy stormy day You lift holy hands and worship God and tell him how much you love him. That's a sacrifice of praise It is and God says I love it and the enemy says I hate it. So take action fortify yourself pay the price Number four the enemy hates it when you've got the heart of a finisher Take action fortify yourself Pay the price, finish the work. The fourth question, will they complete it in a day? The devil's never bothered by activity, even religious activity, as long as it doesn't result in achievement. The enemy's not bothered if you just come to church, sing in a choir, join some department or team. He's not bothered if you simply go to work or go to college, as long as when you've done all that, nothing changes. The devil hates achievers. He hates finishers. So he'll let you do all the stuff you want to do, as long as you stay in the same condition. But the moment you say, I've had enough of this, I'm not going to take it anymore. Enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. When you start achieving and moving towards results, oh, the enemy wakes up and he doesn't like it. Now, there's no power and there's no reward. In starting, I can start anything. I could start a fight with Mayweather. I could start. I could start to swim across the Pacific Ocean. I could start. But the big deal is not starting. The power and reward is in finishing. Nobody gets applauded for starting a race. The award and the achievement is for completing it. And it's not so important that you finish in a day. The more important things in life take a lot longer than a day. But give every day your best, then one day you'll be recognized. One day you'll be celebrated. You know, one day I woke up an aviation student. That night I went to bed as a licensed commercial pilot. One day my son-in-law woke up, Mr. Brueggemann, the next, that night he went to bed as a surgeon, Dr. Brueggemann. If you said you've become a doctor today, the answer would be no. For all of our doctors in here, it took them years, and it took them sweat and sacrifice and obscurity in order to qualify for their career today. They were recognized in one day, but what you missed are the years of sacrifice in obscurity and faithfulness and dedication and sacrifice in order to have that one big day. See, the years and hours of study are just part of the process that resulted in a big day. So the message is, there are things you're doing right now nobody recognizes. Nobody's paying any attention. But those are prices you're paying, efforts you're putting into what you're doing, that will one day bring you recognition. If you're faithful in a little, Jesus said, you'll be faithful in much. If you're unfaithful in a little and you win the 700 million Powerball lotto, you'll just be a disaster because you couldn't handle a little, you'll be worse when you get a lot. I think God may save some believers from having a lot because they're a disaster now. They'd be terrible if he gave them more. So are you trustworthy? See, not if you can't be faithful in a little assignment. One day, one day, if you'll stay faithful, the prices you're paying will give you a big day, and you'll be called up to take your place front and center. One day, the spotlight will shine on you. Many years ago, many more than i like to remember, I stood in the maybe Center at Oral Roberts University at a Church of God in Christ convention. 14,000 people were there. I stood up and preached on A-level Christianity. I don't know anybody there. Sitting behind me is a man who never raised more than $400 for an offering, who had 400 people in a rented bank building in poverty-ridden West Virginia and had been doing so for years. Unknown, uncelebrated, unheralded, and unnoticed. That man sitting behind me was T.D. Jakes. And when he stood on the platform in front of 14,000 people a day later, everything changed. And he became an international phenomenon. It didn't happen in a day. He got promoted in a day. But it was years in obscurity doing what he's doing now that paid off in one big day. So you stay faithful where God has put you, And your day will come that's a fact don't quit stay with it and be a finisher tell your pal next to you finish the work finish it see people may not notice your sacrifice today they may not notice your effort today but one day you'll be rewarded so take action fortify yourself pay the price finish the work number five The enemy hates it when you produce beautiful results out of ugly, messy situations. Look at the fifth question. Will they revive stones from this heap of rubbish? Take action. Fortify yourself. Pay the price. Finish the work. Turn things around. God specializes in working with mess. He specializes in taking the most unpleasant, unbecoming situations and turning them into glorious experiences. In Genesis 1, verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So there's chaos, confusion, disorder, and disarray. And God said in the midst of that mess and disorder, let there be light. Do you know that God wants to reach out to people who hurt the most, people whose life you consider to be messed up the most? Church people like everything to be picture perfect, but God loves to bless in a mess. In fact, when He made man, He took mess, mud, clay, and squeezed it into His own image. God loves to take the weak and foolish things and make something strong and beautiful. He always chooses the people you wouldn't choose. Yeah. You know how you, you know how you know you've made God in your own image? Because he hates everything you do. But then you find out he doesn't. And it's just remarkable about his grace, how he takes the things we despise, and he'll use them for incredible, take a coward, take a prostitute, take a murderer, I think tax collectors I'm telling you only God can do this and that's what makes him so appealing to unself-righteous people self-righteous people hate it because they think he loves them based on their performance said but he doesn't have a clipboard you know he's looking for one thing looking for Jesus in your life who paid it all and now I I want to achieve something for His glory and for my benefit. I, I do. But I'm not doing anything I'm doing in order to earn His approval. I, God is, he, he loved me before I was a Christian. He loved me while I was yet in sin, the book of Romans says. So He can't love me any less or any more. How silly. So God loves to take weak, foolish things and make something strong and beautiful. Don't write yourself off. I don't care how bad your past is or how negative your situation is. Stop writing yourself off or letting other people come in and discourage you that God doesn't have a future for you. You've blown it too bad. We will have in the months ahead a convicted murderer who spent 34 years in prison, who now pastors one of the largest churches in Nashville, Tennessee, who's going to show you what God can do, even with a convicted murderer who had his life completely turned around. And I've been in his church. His church hadn't got elevators. That sucker's got escalators. Come on, somebody. Yeah. So Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Don't let anybody make you feel small simply because you're in a mess. That mess is God's raw material to produce a message through you. Don't allow anyone to make you feel unimportant because you've been through something you're not proud of. As long as you can turn it over to God, God can turn it around. So the enemy will ask you those five questions through people to get you discouraged and to get you to give up. And if that doesn't work, he uses three other quick tactics. This is in Nehemiah 6. Number one, negotiation. The Bible says that when they said they couldn't stop Nehemiah from the building project, they said in chapter 6, verse 2, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do him harm. So they said, Okay, we know you want to build, but let's talk about it. Do you really have to take this assignment so seriously? Don't allow the enemy to negotiate with you. Scripture says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Give it your best. Don't give God half measure. They said, come down to one of the villages of Ono. Ono means grief. It's the place the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy your dream. It's a place of death. So they said, come down to Ono. And Nehemiah said, "Oh no, I'm, I'm not coming down to Ono. When Pharaoh realized Moses was determined to take Israel out of his land, he tried to negotiate. He said, okay, go, but leave the women and children. Moses says, nope, we're all going together. Our families are going to stay with us. Then Pharaoh says, okay, okay, take your family, but leave your cattle. Moses says, nope, we won't even leave a hoof behind. We're dedicating everything to the Lord. No room for negotiation. Now, if the enemy can't get you to leave something valuable behind, he'll get you to take something unnecessary along. And when Israel left Egypt, they took a mixed multitude. God told Abraham to leave his country and family. He took Lot, his nephew, and Lot almost cost him his destiny. Don't let the enemy negotiate with you. Some people are not qualified to go into your future. Say goodbye. Disconnect It's not a tragedy, it's a blessing. God isn't giving you this vision for everybody. And so don't try to drag something that God's not in along with you. It could stumble and hurt your future and destiny. The second thing he'll do is intimidate. Nehemiah 6, verses 6 through 9. They accuse Nehemiah of trying to make a name for himself. You just want to be king. You're in rebellion against the king of Judah. We know your motives are corrupt. And Nehemiah is not intimidated at all. When you're doing something significant in life or for God, people talk about you. Ain't nobody talking about you. You ain't doing anything. You think that's cool? That's not good. See? They'll question your motive, question your intention, try to intimidate you. They haven't met you. They don't know you. They don't know your motive, and they've got a big mouth about all they're pontificating about you. you. In this business called religion, you get a church like a, a Bill Hybels or Joel Osteen or Brian Houston or anybody that's, that suddenly becomes global, all the know-it-alls have, a, have their little pontificating criticisms. And they know this and they know that. They don't know squat. They've never met them. They don't know them. I've lived with them, been with them, slept in rooms with them, done conferences with them, been in their home with them. I know a lot more than Big Mouth knows on his little blog. I know the sacrifice. I know the pain. I know what they've been through, but nobody else knows. You shut up if you don't know somebody. Well, I heard, I heard, shut up. God hates a talebearer. That's you. That's you. I just might say, at least say, well, I don't know. I never met him. I don't know. I'll give somebody the benefit of the doubt till I know him and I meet him. I've had people say to me, "Well, because you've got dark eyes, reset, and, and thick eyebrows, we just thought you were mean." Well, you're not mean at all. I said, "I'm the sweetest, most tender thing you ever met in your life." But people say, "Well, you're not like I thought at all. That's because you don't know me. I'm a teddy bear. I only bite bad people. That's all. Not, not, not people that." Nice people that don't know anything, just mean old religious people. That's who Jesus kind of bit too. They are the meanest of the mean. And whenever a negative report is going on around about you, you can usually trace it back to negative people. They don't have much going in life, so they're going to talk about your life. And there are some things you must not pay attention to. When you're doing something significant for God, the enemy will try to intimidate you. Don't defend yourself, don't try to set the record straight, don't try to explain, don't try to appease anybody, continue to focus on what God has called you to do, just like Nehemiah. You can't put your your vision on hold till everybody understands your heart. If God's given you a dream, run with that dream. God didn't consult anybody before He set the agenda for your life, so neither should you. Keep believing in yourself. A professor stood in front of his class of 30 senior molecular biology students, and he's about to pass out the final exam. He said, I've been privileged to be your instructor for this semester, and I know how hard you've all worked to prepare for the test. I also know that most of you are off to medical school or graduate school next year, and I'm fully aware of the pressure you're under to keep your GPAs up. So I'm prepared to offer an automatic B to anyone who prefers not to take the final exam And the relief in the class was audible as large numbers of students jumped up to thank the professor as they quickly departed from the class, taking the B. The professor looked back at a handful of seven students that remained, he closed the door, and he took attendance. Then he handed out the final exam. There were just two sentences on the paper. Congratulations, you just received an A in this class. Keep believing in yourself. They kept thinking. I'm not taking a B. I think I can make an A. That's nice if people support you and encourage you, but it's okay if they don't. Everybody doesn't have to believe in your dream. Don't put your dream on hold waiting for somebody to come around. You can't wait for everybody to understand you, to be comfortable with your vision or dream. You can't wait for somebody to realize you're not trying to upset them. You're not on an ego trip. You're not trying to prove anything. You're just trying to do what God put in your heart. And third and last, manipulation. They said to Nehemiah, they planned to kill you. Come and hide in the temple. But I perceived that the Lord had not sent this prophet at all. All of these attempts were designed by the enemy to get Nehemiah to stop building and come down. And Nehemiah had one answer. I'm too busy to come down. He said, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. So let me ask you a question this morning. What is trying to get you to come down? And who is trying to get you to come down from God's assignment for your life? What? and who? What's the situation creating distraction that wants you to give up and abandon God's call in your life? You give one answer and one answer only. I am too busy to come down. I am too busy to come down. When you're making a difference for God, the devil will create a situation where it seems logical and expedient and right to stop what you're doing and quit. Come down. And a distraction is anything that pulls you. It can be good things, but it's a distraction for you because it pulls you away from God's call on your life. And they don't come with labels, folks. You've got to learn how to discern a distraction. And when you discern it, one answer, I'm too busy to come down. Every day of your life and mine, you're going to be confronted with two invitations. One, come up. The other, come down. One's from God, who always calls you to a higher level in Him. The other invitation is always through people, but from the enemy, come down. You want to disconnect from those people quick. One final thought. All those invitations are going to come through people. And when you get an invitation to come down, remember Nehemiah's words. I'm too busy to come down. Thanks for joining us today, and may God richly bless you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.